Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 40 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius Dinaeus, joined as ever by my esteemed co-host, the sports journalist, Liam Happ. Good evening, Liam. How are you doing? I do realise, Dean, that the only reason I still do this podcast is I just enjoy having someone refer to me as esteemed. You are the only place I can get that fixed. So thank you for that. Yes, I'm doing great. I'm amazing after that introduction. Well, all the other adjectives I I could use for you are totally unbroadcastable. So, yeah, we have to stick with esteemed, really. And, And this is for a podcast that actually does use a fair few swear words. So I shudder to think. I shudder. Absolutely shudder to think yeah. what you'd want to call me. Sometimes we swear because when you're reviewing WCW shows, no other word will do than what the fucking hell are they thinking of. Yes, and sometimes we swear just because we have a fucking problem. Yeah. Anyway, welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you for <laughs> downloading us wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, apologies if you did uh, have a, a, a an error 404 recently. Our page went down very briefly uh we've paid the bills and we're back again and those knee pads i bought came in handy <laughs> yeah it's always me that's the, the heavy lifting isn't it dean yep yep you're uh, the the junior partner as far as age goes you know yeah well mr as we've got 11 months and 29 days until that bill's due again so i hope you're feeling flexible in that time <laughs> it's your turn you're up cowboy Moving on swiftly, so t- today's episode, we're not looking at a specific pay-per-view, we're not looking, uh, over, we're not watching along with the Nitro, we're, I, I guess this is one of our specials, isn't it? Yes, very special, Long, long-awaited special, I think some of our listeners will remember us alluding to late last year, having in our possession some audio footage from the Bret Hart Spoken Word Tour that uh, someone I know quite well had the honour of hosting. Can't remember his name. So Bob uh, or, yeah. talent, talentless. Yeah. <laughs> some some hack. So yeah, that was um, hosted by the erstwhile Kayfabe Events, a company sadly no longer with us. But um, they they've done a few bits with like Eddie Dennis and Jimmy Havoc and uh, Austin Aries. But yeah, this was the big one. Um, with with Bret Hart and we did four days it was back in June 2018 I think we did um where did we do we started in my hometown of Brighton which was fantastic and then we moved to Cardiff really nice venue there Portland House I think it was called um then to um we advertised it as Manchester really it was Oldham it was the Queen Elizabeth Hall which is a famous old venue um for world of sport wrestling actually and we had uh johnny saint and marty jones as special guests there and um and then we moved on to our final night in london um at bush hall in shepherd's bush which is uh where you came along as my as my honored guest for the evening honored guest i like that your your, your use of words is bang on this evening i'm loving this well, it's the more polite version of freeloader you know yeah thanks mate you're welcome at any time. Yeah. But yeah, I you know, as a Londoner, I tagged along to the London leg. But yeah, that was right at the end of you doing what not many people can say, Dean, and that is going on the road with Bret Hart for four days. So that must have been an incredible experience. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Because the the guy you saw on stage was exactly the same as the guy that we saw um you know, behind the scenes as such. There's, there, it, it, you know, sometimes you see people putting on a, a public persona or anything like that. You're not with this guy at all. He was, he was just Bret Hart the whole time. He's fantastic. You know, full of stories, full of memories, um, 
and I've got to say as well, I've never ever known anyone take so much time to spend with their with their fans. I mean, the night we were in Cardiff, um, it, with the meet, we had a meet and greet, and that carried on until you know till the after the show. He was talking with fans till one o'clock in the morning. Um, and like his his family that were with him had like brought him some dinner that was backstage going going stone cold because he was talking to fans. Ah, I see what um, he did there. Oh yeah, uh, not not intended. Sorry. Uh, and another another thing that was, that was great that really stuck stuck in the memory was um we went to Sky Sports News Studios um because he was being featured on there and I, I tagged along with him there, and even just walking into the Sky Sports Studios and coming out again. Various people wanting photos and autographs. You know, he obliged literally every single person, every single person. And you know, uh, I think a lot of a lot of celebrities, a lot of wrestlers even, can probably take lesson from Bret Hart into how to you know engage and endear your public. And I think the reason that he is so enduringly popular is because of that respect that he holds his fans in and the way he treats them. Yeah, exactly. And as you touched upon, the the, the, the crucial thing for me is, is just exactly how similar he is behind the scenes to when he's in front of a camera. Because when you think about it, there's some things that Bret Hart says that don't go down too well with some people. But, yes. But you never get the impression there's any sort of hijinks there. You are getting pure, unfiltered Bret Hart. Uh, if he's unhappy about something, he will tell you. And some people find that to be miserable, but you have to ask yourself this question. Um, we all know the sort of person in our lives, we've got at least one or two of them, who know exactly the right things to say. And they know exactly how to frame any sort of reaction to anything conversation-wise or whatever. And you leave the room and you, you know some of them will say all sorts of things about you when you're not there do you really want that sort of guy or do you want a Bret Hart where you're not going to like everything you hear but you know exactly what you are getting and I think that's why I always take the side of guys like that in the when you we, this is all second hand but when you hear about some some guys in wrestling uh it's it's a it's a Bret Hart over a Shawn Michaels or a Triple H all day long mm. And it's funny you should mention that, actually, because I did say to him before the first show in Brighton, I said, you know, is there anything you don't want me to ask you about, anything you don't want me to cover? Because, yeah, I'm thinking, I mean, I didn't want to cover the Montreal Screwjob for, for two reasons. One, it's been done to death. And secondly, I knew that when we when, when we opened the floor up to fan questions, that would be a, a subject of a fan question. I just knew it. So I wanted to leave something there. Um, you know, but I was thinking also, yeah, could I talk to you about Owen if the if it came up in conversation? He's you know, he's, he's absolutely fine with all of that. And he, he said the only thing he said to me, don't ask him about Triple H and Stephanie, because basically he was I think worried that you know you know when he was on Wrestle Talk and he he said that Triple H was was it a three or four out of ten and that caused a bit of controversy. Mm. Um, he basically didn't want to get tempted into that rabbit hole of of talking about what he you know he thought of of his wrestling ability i guess um and i did i did try and get him onto this podcast and yeah i would have had the time because we you know we were as i said we were on the road together i could have just hit record on my phone and got an interview with him but he said um that he doesn't do podcasts because um i think he must have done one in the past and, and you know he he kind of says things when he's in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with people, he's a lot less guarded, I guess. Um, and he, he gets himself into trouble. He's on the WWE Legends contract, and therefore he wants to be very careful of that, I, I guess, and fair play to him. But um, another thing that, that stood out in my mind was when I asked him about Jim Neidhart and memories of working with him, and you know, he said that he wasn't in great health um, at the moment, and it was only a few months later that Jim Neidhart actually passed away. So I think you know he obviously knew a lot more um, about that situation than than was made public at the time. Um, but you know he did tell a few great uh, great stories, both on stage and backstage. Yeah, I think he, even when the on stage, because I remember some of the on stage stuff on the London leg, there were some hilarious stories about uh, the Anvil pissing himself and things like that. 
or was it pissing on the floor or something? Uh, it, it, it was a great story. Yeah, it was that they were they were rooming together um, as, as they they did as tag partners in the Hart Foundation, and Bret Hart had gone to bed and Neidhart had stayed in the bar of the hotel getting pissed basically, and um, then Bret said he woke up to the sound of what he thought was was Jim Neidhart pissing on the floor um and he wakes up and he's like jim what the hell are you doing what are you in jim night outside what are you talking about brett says you're, you're pissing on the floor no i'm not he's like, I, I think he always i think it could even have been that he said you're dreaming go back to sleep so anyway brett went back to sleep Woke up the next morning, thinks I'm sure Jim Neidhart was pissing just in that spot. But he goes, I turn, you know, I look, look down and, and the, the carpet's bone dry. So I'm thinking it must have been a dream. And um, when they're, they're packing their bags to leave, he goes, did you piss on the carpet? And Neidhart's like, no, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm sure you pissed on the carpet just there. He goes, well, how can I have pissed on the carpet? It's bone dry. Okay, you must have been dreaming. Neidhart then gets his case and wheels it, wheels it along. And this trail of piss just leaks out of the tr- of the uh, case as he's going <laughs> along the carpet. And he basically, he'd pissed on the floor, but he'd pissed in his own suitcase and then just packed it up and moved on. Oh, yeah, Amazing. yeah. That that I, I mean, like as I said, like the the entire Anvil section was pretty good. But I do remember there was probably not as much as as you said was discussed behind the scenes. But when it came up about his situation and wanting to like see him a little more frequently and things like that, there was definitely like a there was an air of it was just just a whole ominous air about it, like like. Brett was indeed dreading the worst, and as yeah. you said, that was to come. Yeah, and he also um the, the the daytime before we did the show in Oldham, um he was taken to Wigan, and um it turned out to be the last time he visited um Tommy Billington, the Dynamite Kid, um and that was obviously quite um quite emotional for him, um but he you know he said that. Although Dynamite couldn't talk, he said, "Yeah, he recognised him, and he, 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 you know, he knew what was going on, basically." Um, but um, and obviously, yeah, within a reasonably short space of time, both Dynamite and Neidhart passed away. Yeah, it's, it, it feels like there's, it's it's hard to go through much of a Bret Hart timeline without some sort of tragedy. It's it's, it's been a tough old life for him, and. Um, unfortunately, when we got to the London leg, and we well, obviously you've got this whole deal where you run, through, as you said before, you run through some stuff with him and uh, ask some questions, and you try to keep it very leg to leg, and then it'll be the time of some of the fans to get in, and and very kindly you'd arrange it so I could have a piece of that. So we basically we we made sure that the fans got their chance to get involved and ask their questions and then once the once the, the the ticket paying fans had had their fill of the q a it was my turn right at the end and i had the opportunity yeah. to ask one question exactly because we we while we couldn't get brett on the podcast we kind of you know agree we came to an agreement that we could you know we could get you from the podcast to ask this question of brett and then um jason walls who ran kayfabe events very kindly said you know we he would let us have the audio that we could release on uh, on a podcast now for for various reasons that we won't bore you with but including laptops dying and other things it's taken it's taken about a year and a half for us to get it but we have finally got it um and you yeah you well we'll we'll come on to to your your question in a moment but i think the other the other thing we do have to mention is that um ever since his stroke bret hart has been very he's very emotional basically It's it's a a side effect of the stroke and um, on the first day that um, I did the um, podcast, uh, the podcast, the first day that I did the, the tour, I did manage to make him cry yeah, on, on stage in front of everyone. And, and not, not willing to be uh, upstaged. There I go. And I ask a question that manages to get him to cry. I want to say three times. 
You you were not to be outdone, were you, Liam? No. Yeah. Three, maybe four times he did have to stop and take a break. But as you said, be, between the uh, the after effects, everything he's gone through, plus just to, I mean, let's face facts, everything he has gone through does take an enormous emotional strain. If you or I went through that even without a stroke, it would be tough to recall yeah. it. So, But I do want to say, if we just get into the details, so we, we, we run a WCW podcast. This was an opportunity to speak to someone who's very prominent in WCW, albeit not as prominent as he should have been. We, mm-hmm. you know, you think back to our very first episode covering Starcade '97. We discussed the Bret Hart situation there in depth. It's come up since. It will come up more, so I won't go into exact details other than what Bret himself is going to elaborate on in a minute. But the whole situation of his WCW tenure was, you know, it was a, it was a field day to ask a question to get a good answer from an outspoken legend like Brett. So I decided to go for Starcade '99, which mm-hmm. we've also covered in an early episode. We and have the, and the infamous uh, match with Goldberg with the super kick that landed way too hard. And one of the reasons I want to ask about this, not necessarily because of the match itself, although Brett, as you'll see in a minute, Brett goes well into that as well. But if you look back with 2019 or even 2018, any sort of modern eyes on the weeks after Starcade 99, booked and written, or I say written by Vince Russo, and with you know the 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 WCW's cast of higher ups at that time, you look at Brett's schedule after suffering this severe career-ending concussion, and he is working week in week out, all the TV tapings etc. I remember yep. having I had an old VHS compilation of old Channel Five Worldwide. I just taped because you know back in the late nineties, early two thousands, you tape stuff. You just tape it for the sake of it, you know. Uh, and I remember there was a match on Thunder between Bret Hart and Terry Funk where they wrestled a hardcore match and they were just basically doing all the gimmicks, all the risky stuff for, for no reason. Mm-hmm. In in the grand scheme of things, they had no reason to happen. And, and then you realise, like 20 years later, not only was he severely concussed, not only did he have all those uh, medical after effects, but... Look at all the things that have happened. There are guys who are very close to Brett, like Chris Benoit, for crying out loud. Uh, all the things that have happened since. And I just had to ask. And as you'll find out in a minute, that was exactly the way I put the question. I said, look, yeah. looking at it, it in this day and age, you couldn't have been happy with the the way you were used. And I think I asked him if he if, if he did attempt to tell those, look, I need time off, I'm concussed. I'm in a bad way. So that was the starting point. And one of the yeah. reasons I like to elaborate that is because, as we as, as we aim to just be clear about, we have this audio. It's it's taken some some strain, some effort to get here. I have to really thank uh, Martin Watchorn who who derived the tape from the from the video recording he took. He's been really helpful and really generous. So thank you so much for this, Martin. Martin was a yeah, great guy. We, had, we were on the on the tour with him, got on really well with him. Instead, you just want to say that episode where we cover Starcade 99, if you do want to listen back to that, that is episode number five. Yes, number five. And uh, this this audio, we, we're so grateful to have it and to finally belatedly put it up. But we just want to let you know, uh, we, we've run some post-production of it. It comes from a camcorder. Martin's gone to the trouble of getting it into audio shape for us. I've gone through it just to try and touch it up a little bit. I had some friends look into it who are a bit more professional video than I am. We've done the best that we can just to get maximum audio. And Dean and I have listened to it. And you can listen to this we wouldn't publish it if it was absolutely garbage audio or anything like that yeah but i think the the content of you know the words that brett says i mean because he's he's written about some of this in his book but there's a he goes into a lot of detail here detail i don't think he's ever talked about in public before um no and it was fascinating i mean what what i also do have to say just sort of a peek behind the curtain as such was that 
Um, you know, this was, as, as you mentioned, Liam, this was the last question of the night. And Brett didn't give short answers. He gave full and frank answers to everything. And this audio, this answer, I think I think it went for something like 53 minutes. And we kept looking at each other and we kept thinking, you know, we we have got to wrap this up. We are we are like ended up being about an hour over. And I think only about three or four people left, presumably because, you know, they had certain trains to catch or whatever. Everyone just stood, sat there and, and, and listened because, you know, we, as I said, me as the, the host, Eddie Dennis is the guy who's doing the Q&A, Jason is the organiser. We were looking at each other thinking, how on earth can we stop this legend of wrestling who is, no pun intended, bearing his, his heart and soul to us about this stroke that he had? It is, it's, yeah, it's it's fascinating, gripping story, basically. Yeah, not only that, but he's very good at keeping eye contact. And obviously that eye contact is primarily with me as the guy who's asked the question. So as he's going into this great detail, um, I, out of the corner of my eye, I remember seeing you and Eddie look at each other and feel like, you know, this is going very long. But for the most part, I'm having to keep eye contact. And you do the thing where you, you, know, you nod at the points. Yeah. But, but it was very intense. It's it's a huge long answer. None, absolutely none of it was throwaway rambling. Everything oh, was God. was some serious stuff. We've managed to get the majority of this question. The audio is listenable. Uh, we've done our absolute best to maximise the quality from a camcorder. So apologies if it's not as I don't want to say pristine because let's face it, our podcast isn't pristine. But we're we're actually quite proud of the audio levels we've managed using Audacity and Skype. And I think we're going to drop down a, li- a, a little notch quality-wise when we jump to this audio. So sorry for that. But, you know, knock the volume up a little bit, concentrate, and you can make out every word of this. Indeed. Okay, without further ado, let's go to it. So this is Liam Happ of Because WCW talking to Brett, the Hitman Hart, about the end of his tenure in WCW. Which does mean what's in it, my friend? Liam. Liam, you're the main event, which means if this question sucks, it's really awkward. Because <laughs> I can fill the next 10 minutes with like awkward stand up, so make sure it's good. Are you ready? Okay, this great confidence. Welcome. Hi, Brad. Um, Start paying money, money, money. I'm going to you and Goldberg, you know, that match. Uh, he threw the Aaron kick that gave you a concussion. I was just curious because they just ended up you, you worked a week in, week out for like a month after that. Uh, and I was curious as to whether or not you, I don't know, you alerted them so you made up yourself about the situation or, because no, obviously, especially with 2018 lives, what we know about concussions now, it seems with the rich people, it's kind of crazy that someone's going out there. We can wake up for a month after what happened. Well, I was there with even more shit than they had before that. They were clearly the stupidest people in the But uh, yeah, they were really, you know, really bad stuff. Um, I got hurt by Goldberg as soon as he kicked me in the head. You have to understand the like everything I did with Bret Hart style. Like when he throw me in the ropes, I run as hard as I can. When he come off the ropes really hard, it actually launches me back. So when I run back off the ropes, I actually run faster than I was when I hit the ropes. And I was always moving really fast as a wrestler when I did when I hit the ropes. I always use the ropes for momentum. Like I said, the reap they catapult you right back to the center of the ring. WCW had the shittiest rings in They were small, they were 16 foot rings. WWF ring was 20 foot. So there's four feet difference all the way around. And the ropes were like, um, they weren't ropes, they were like cables, like big steel wire underneath, or guard ropes, big rubber hose. Big thick rubber hose, so when you hit the ropes, it wasn't like running into a screaming rope, it was like running into a wall. Actually, momentum stops, and then you got to sort of pretend that there's momentum, even though there isn't one, and push yourself off and run off. You lose, I, I right away lost a lot of speed. I 
off those ropes. And you know, when you come off the ropes, you only got a couple of feet before you're right back in the middle of the ring. There's a bigger ring where, where it takes you know, a few more steps to get to the center. But um, Bill hurt me about four times in that match. If you watch that match, he gives me a forearm in the face that was like, um, I turned it in my book. It was like somebody taking a pillowcase full of bricks and swinging it and smashing it in the face. He almost knocked me out cold in the corner. And then he threw me into the corner across the ring and he charged me full blast. And I had to move to finish the spot because there was a spot on the, the brick we want next to the match. I moved and go over and hit the post so hard I think he put his head on the post. That uh, did the beat, that was, was his thing. And, uh, but I rolled out of the ring because I was going to put the figure four on. But I actually think it was a little bit concussing to right there from Goldberg. Because he really hurt me with an elbow smash. And I was like, holy shit, man, this guy's super scary. And so anyway, I went to put the figure four on the post, and it was kind of a trick to the figure four on the post. Like when you put the figure four on, you gotta throw your leg up, and then you stand on one leg, and you gotta fall backwards. And then I. If you fall backwards, you got nothing to break your fall with. And, and WWF the ring was a little, the hammer was a little lower, a little higher. WWF when I did it, I could fall on my back. I had it right on my shoulders. And I didn't, I took my chin. I didn't whack my head. And anytime you did it, you had to throw yourself up and fall backwards. It's pretty kind of dangerous. And so I realized that doing you know, Steve Austin in WrestleMania 13 that if Steve Austin just grabbed my foot, like he's trying to undo the move, but he actually grabbed my foot by the laces. He's actually pulled my foot and holding me. So it's kind of like in a Roman chair sit-up, where someone's holding me, and you can go back slower, and you can slow your momentum while I'm gliding on that. Then you put the figure four on, and he's holding my foot, and then the floor doors fell to the hold on. Hope that's making sense to you. But uh, anyway, so I had to do that with Goldberg. I had to, by this time, he, like, well, Austin, he was one of the first guys I think I did that to. And, uh, and I still did lots of time. But I'd always tell everybody that I did was you gotta grab my foot and you gotta hold my lace and hold it down towards you so that I can jump up and fall back with a whack in my hand on the ground. And I went over that with Bill and uh, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> so I jump up and he grabbed my foot. I fall backward right on the right of my head, black and white as hard as I can on the ground. So I got two very serious headshots in like 30 seconds from Bill. And uh, so then I remember I, I heard it hurt myself. I remember it took my time getting back in the ring because I was hurt. And I remember I got back in the ring and I think he kind of cut me off or something like that. But he had me in the corner and he goes, watch the kick. And I'm like, okay, what's the kick? I don't want to throw her, I want to throw him in. Whenever I got thrown in the ropes. So I'm coming off the ropes, and again, it's a small ring, and I come off as hard as I can, as best I can, as quick as I can, and Bill's standing, kind of facing sideways to me. So when I come off the ropes, it's like, what is he doing? He's not facing me for a kick. I thought he'd go throw a kick in there, and fall forward. He's standing sideways with a, you know, I don't know what he's doing, but I just kind of keep coming off the ropes. And then he pivoted and kind of swung his whole foot as far as he could. And it always bothers me because his foot was coming up and I, I got my hands up. And I was like, if I've been wrestling every day, my climbing and my sharpness would have been better. But I was only working here and there. And so I was probably a lot more rustier than I wanted to be. And, uh, I remember you can see it on the video here, so I just missed his foot goes under my fingers, I just passed my fingers. And I turned my head so he would knock all my teeth out and kill me with a face He hit me on the back of the head and it was like somebody taking a hockey stick and whacking it across the back of the head as hard as you could. It was instantaneous. I'm probably laughing always in the zone that came. But as soon as I hit the ground, I knew something was wrong. 
and so forth. It's totally confused. I was in La La Land. It's amazing that I, it's like, I don't know what it is, but I still did all the finish. I did everything the way it was supposed to happen. I remember all my parts and the ending and the way it happened in the match, which I don't remember now. I was still together mentally for all my spots, but I was messed up really bad. And I, and I knew it right away. I thought, I think he tore something in my neck. Like I think I should tore a muscle or something. My neck, I remember right away I came back to the restroom. I was nauseous. I felt like throwing up. I was in a cold sweat. And I remember I was almost, it was like a really scary state. Anyone that came up and saw me would have said, get this guy to talk. He's hurt really bad. I remember, I think I got a concussion. And um, they had trainers. They had a trainer that gave me a handbook. Because I don't have anything else. I don't even know what he was used to. They didn't have anything. They had 10 doctors or physicians. I think WWE is better for today. They don't have anything back that they really knows what they're doing. I don't think anyway. With WCW, um, he was used to stay with me. I remember I drove back to the hotel. I remember someone drove me back to the hotel. But I was, um, I was messed up. And you could see it in my eyes. It was like somebody over the head with a hammer. And I was clearly not well and not right. And I remember I um, just kept. Tell myself I'll sleep it off and we'll give me a tomorrow. I got up the next day, I was still up, but I never even slept on the bullshit that night. And the next day I had a wrestle on Nitro. Uh, I wrestled Ben Wong, if I'm not mistaken. No, I actually did something with Gold Wong. I did my promo, I did everything because I don't know how you can function sometimes with a concussion, but you do. But I was not right, and then I, I um, it was. Two nights after, like the next day after the night trade, they found her in uh, Salisbury, Maryland, which was like 180 miles away or something like that. And I wrestled Ben Wong in that match. And Goldberg chased up to the ring, if you remember, and chased me back and smashed the car, tried to stick his fist in the window, and we're like watching this. Like, so we're going to try to put his fist through the car window, I think, and he did. He punched the windshield, smashed his fist. And he did the window. I remember I could see it right from where I had the best view of anything. He cut his arm right to the bone, about eight, ten inches long, big giant gash in his arm. And he almost, he looked like he was going to think outside the car. It was open like, um, like a cut that deep right to the bone, in his bone. And he almost fainted, I'm not kidding you. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I, I had a point told my head from the day one, right from the very first day I and even after the match that I had a really bad concussion. And um, they nobody did anything, nobody cared for me. They just kept they just tell me what to do and tell me to go up and switch it out and it's true, so it was such a good thing. <laughs> um, but anyway, they I they no one took my concussion serious and I found out that it was you know, I think I'm kind of an expert on concussions. And you lose the ability to diagnose yourself. When you have a broken arm, you look at it and it's like, okay, I've got a broken arm. And you know, and the brain tells you, okay, I've got a broken arm. But when you have a concussion, you can't see it. And your brain keeps saying, you're fine. There's nothing wrong. You're, you're, you're messed up. And um, I went through that for, I wrestled. Shit, even that night with um, Goldberg before he cut his arm. I remember backing the car up um, and then speeding out of the back of the building and it was December. And uh, I was supposed to, that's, it was all scripted. You drive off, you do that's all the show ends. It's like burn around through the entrance of the leader of the arena. And I, I drive off. But I drove off, sped off to escape Bill Goldberg. And I hit an icy patch, and I almost turned up my truck, my car, and Lincoln was going straight into the ring trucks that were outside. You can almost see it on the 
the video and then the show because they film it. But I actually lose everybody lost. It was out of, the car was out of control. It was not for me. Like I'm, I'm doing my part like a stunt driver. You know? I'm driving off my ice, which I don't think anymore. I didn't expect. And my car is sliding out of control right into the main track. Luckily for me, the tires got traction or a dry patch and I swerved and missed the truck. But I remember one shit. My brother Owen has got killed on a stupid stunt. And here I am in the back of the building. I remember saying, I'll never do a stunt. Never do anything like that. But here I am driving a car like I'm a stuntman into a, with no seatbelt on at a truck. And that's really, it really pissed me off after the fact. But you know, I didn't remember that until I went home and watched it on TV. And okay, I remember on my, the night before, because it was last week. Um, but what did I do last week so I can sort of be up to speed on what my storyline is in? So I'm trying to remember, I remember on the, the tape of the match, and it's like, I watched the whole scene where this guy was the truck, and I'm like, the light goes off. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing this stuff anymore. I'm questioning this stuff. I'll do my stuff. They pay me for doing my wrestling in the ring. Anything outside that, like driving trucks and doing all this crazy shit, that's not what I'm going to pay for. I don't want to do stunts. I don't want to do anything like that in my life in the area. So I left. It was, I think it was right after Christmas. And I flew down to uh, it was in, uh, Houston, I think. And, uh, I remember I got to the building. I called them the day before and said, I'm not doing much stunts. I got a concussion. Um, something's wrong. But I was also trying to get as many days done as I could to, you know, I, I only had so many days in my contract with those, you know, those 220 days a year, which is a big far apart from the 300 I had at WMF. But I remember um, calling them up and that Bischoff had inquired at Bruce Russo, who I had another guy who I called him Bush. He was a nice guy. He even less than the rest of the business. And Russo um, or Bischoff, which is how I imagine. <laughs> he was uh, just a corporate guy. He, he was basically thrown, stuck in the job. I can remember seeing Tiger from Turner, but he was going to rest in the house. So he was trying his hardest, but he didn't know he was going to leave and tell you that I'm going to go rest in And uh, I told him, I said, no, there ain't no stunts. He goes, you don't have to. And we were through the East, and uh, that day I seen them walking the road. They came up to me and told me they wanted me to be in a brand new Cadillac that had like 16 kilometers on it or 16 miles or something. It was like ridiculous. It was like brand spanking new and fully loaded with CD player and all those loaded Cadillac. I don't know, it must have cost know, 80 grand or something like that. And you go, um, Psycho Sid is going to drive a monster truck. The top of you. And we need you to be in the car. And he's just going to drive on top of the car. But just as the truck, they're going to pull me out of the car as it gets through. They had some plan. And I remember, was like, luckily, I was like, still had enough sense with my concussion and full boom. I said, What did I tell you guys yesterday? He said, I'm not doing stunts. I'm not a stuntman. I'm a professional wrestler. I'm not getting in a monster truck. I'm not doing anything. So they got someone else to do that. And um, they did drive the monster truck over top of the Cadillac. Brand new Cadillac. They tore it out and it was in and, and uh, everything else. Um, close to 100 grand that you wasted for 10 seconds of video time at the end of the show. And it's WCW. But anyway, so I was very concussed and aware of it. But I had to keep wrestling. And I kept wrestling. I wrestled from, I got hurt on Jan, uh, December 20th. And I wrestled until January 10th. And every night I did another shot and another shot and another shot. I wrestled Terry Funk and he put me in some kind of hardcore match. And he put me in some kind of bin. And he was pushing me in the, in the bin. I remember having a whole match with the, the props. And, Started from baseball bats and all these silly things they had for the props. And, and, you know, I was pretty good. I had the like, first seven or eight, ten minutes of this match was probably 12, 
this world. And I didn't even believe that I remember he talked to me and he said, uh, he said, because uh, I said, I have to wrestle, man. I have this match and I said, I can't wrestle. I'm going to stop right now. He goes, Muhammad Ali, um, it's not just Parkinson's that he had. He, he's a victim of concussions. He's got concussion damage. That's why he's got all the problems in his life. You're going to end up like Muhammad Ali if you don't stop right now. And, um, <clears throat> I remember kind of thinking in my head, as, as concussed as I was, you know, you only got one brain, and you know, you can't put a new one, you can get a new knee, you can get, you can get a lot of things redone to fix and you can get a new brain. And I was like, okay, and I pretty much knew when I walked out of his office and I knocked the rules over, and I called the server, and told him I had a concussion, and I couldn't wrestle. And it was going to take a long time to see how, how whether I would really wrestle again. But I also didn't want to shut the door because they would just, my contract with WCW was uh, my $3 million contract, uh, my $120,000 a week, checks and all that. We're all at risk. If I couldn't, if, if I didn't wrestle within a six week span, they could not my contract and fire me. And, and, so I was really, I kind of had to give the impression, which I was trying, I was honest. Because my doctor told me, he goes, well, we're not for nine months to a year, but then you can never go back. And we'll see how you improve. And so I kind of looked like, I'm not, I, I didn't tell him that, that my career was over. I said, it might be, but I, you know, I kind of left the door open, I was kind of fuzzy, and I think they felt bad that I got hurt, so they didn't fire me right away. Right from day one, my, every week that I got paid, my check got cut in half. And so instead of getting 120000 I started getting $60,000. And then the next week I got 30000 And the next week I got 15000 And then I got those hours. And then they only fired me. And um, <clears throat> that concussion, I remember with my doctor, he told me, he told me, he said, you got a hole in the back of your neck the size of a quarter. And he goes, it's, you've got a poor muscle. That'll never get better. Never improve. But it'll get stronger with other muscles that wrap around it, and I'll give it some support. But you've got a torn muscle. So I remember, like, because I was starting to, you know, wonder about others. Whenever I came back, I said, I don't feel like a big hole in my neck. And so then he said, lie down on the, on this table in this office room. I mean, lie down. He was like, "Well, I have to hang my head off the edge of the table." He goes, "Just relax." And then he could, he could pull my hair. He could take his finger and he could feel it. He could stick it like a little inch of the back of my hand. It's like, uh, <clears throat> I started realizing that uh, this is really serious. And, uh, and then, um, you know. Like, I mean, for the whole time, I, I had that whole six-month period, because I kept telling myself, like, one day I could shake it off and get better. But I never got better, not, not for a long time. It's only, uh, at least a year, maybe two years. I, I had trouble tying my shoelaces. As soon as I bent over time, my shoelaces were standing up. All the blood would go to my head. And when I, I finished tying my shoelaces, I'd sit up and I'd, the whole room would just like spinning. There's so many um, side effects of concussion. And um, I remember he told me, he says, you, you lose the ability to diagnose yourself. And that's why you keep telling yourself you're okay. And then you're not. And you have to trust your doctors, you're not because your brain's not sending the right messages to you. You're not going to listen to yourself. And uh, over a period of time, I started to realize that he's so right. And it never got better for a long time. I really, when I started to, to finally improve through my uh, concussion, was like, and weeks leading up to my stroke, and I was starting to feel better than when I was going to bike I couldn't lift weights. I had to put weightlifting completely. I couldn't do any exercises. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't listen to music. I couldn't watch, uh, I can remember John one time watching uh, TV. They have a Gillette shaving cream commercial, you know, Gillette, and I think dramatic music and all that stuff. And we were just, just, you know, 
Bunch of leukemia, that commercial. And just burst out in tears. And then me and my brother had my crying that she went from the commercial. And it's like all part of the concussion. And so they just started realizing like, all oh, this shit. Like, I'm really, this is like a real concussion. And it didn't help that um, WCW. I remember when I had to do, um, in order to get my check, I had to do the um, um, promotions and selling tickets and doing toy fairs and different things like that. I had the toys come down and do these toy fairs and different things. They flew me over to Europe, and I was in the audience and a promo. I was the main guy for a tour of Germany, and they flew me over there. And, uh, instead, I walked out and did a promo, and just stuff like that. But I remember when I saw the rest of I hadn't seen in a couple months. They were really all, um, I remember Brian Knox and which was it all. It was like, like they thought I was working, like a bullshit injury. We'll go along with it. And like, nobody believed I had a concussion. It was all like, yeah, those concussions are really bad, right? right? And like, it's like, I remember like thinking, I really have a concussion for real. And they're like, yeah, we know. And like, it was, anyway, they didn't really believe it. And uh, I started becoming a little more frustrated that people didn't understand um, what a concussion was and how serious it was. Because everybody's like, well, can you do this? You know, let's see. say, no, I can't do that. Even my, um, my manager um, was getting on me about vacations all over, trying to get back to work. And so he was sitting home watching TV all day, you need to get back to work and then get you in the movies and TV commercials and all that stuff. And so I'm not doing any of that. I can't remember. I can't do any of that stuff. I can't even watch TV. And everybody's like, thinking, like, yeah, I'm sure you can watch TV. I don't know, can't you understand? So I guess they called it off the team, giving me a total migraine after 10 minutes of watching it. I can only watch TV from about 30 feet away, like from two rooms old, I could watch TV and I didn't bother. So I'd have to do dishes, do dishes in the kitchen and watch the TV from about 30 feet away. And I'm like, okay, I can watch TV. But it was all stuff like that. Unfortunately, I only started recovering from my concussion when I started the fuzziness and the dizzy and bad. Dizzy spells and all, it's very clear. Um, just in the weeks leading up to when I had my stroke. Um, I always thought they were connected. Um, they, I know when I had gone to some of the best um, medical specialists in Canada, state of the art, world, world renowned experts on concussions, the NHL and the CFL and all these sports teams and stuff. They were at McGill University in Montreal. They, Threw me down and they did all these tests on my brain. Every kind of test and uh, x ray and C scan and different things like that. And, uh, <clears throat> and I went home. Um, I had, when I had a stroke, I, I, uh, I think they were connected. They told me that um, the stroke I had was right on the top of my head. The size of a jelly the blockage. And um, I don't know why that happened. I just fell off my bicycle. My, bi my bicycle, I ride my bicycle. It was, um, I think, the 24th of June, 2002. Not long, a few weeks after Bulldog passed away, and we being quite um, down the dumps about his passing. I think her journey passed away along. Is and a few others, and I was like, who loses some really good friends? And I think through my whole concussion, they, they do ultimately fight about depression and stuff like that. But I was trying to stay up and stay positive, and I went for a bike ride, which was my passion. I love bike riding all the time. And I was riding my bike in Calgary on a flat, grassy, not very nice, like, you know, right in the city along the river. Um, but there was a big hole in the grass about the size of, you could probably take a full basketball and put it in this hole. Um, maybe even a little bit bigger than a basketball. 
And the lawnmowers will bore these grass to move the grass and all kind of that thing. But when it goes over a hole like that, the grass inside the hole grows up, but it just covers the hole, so it's like camouflage, but then it's sealed there. And I don't know how it's supposed to. And actually, it was on the way to the gym to work out, and uh, I was coasting along, and I was actually standing on one leg with like one hand, one foot on the pedal, and the other one sort of resting. It wasn't going that fast. And I was just looking at all these stupid little cuts from the path on the grass to go over some bushes because I wanted to take a leap in the bushes. And um, um, didn't really go to my home on the same day. So anyway, I hit this hole in the grass and my whole tire sunk into the grass. And I was standing up and I remember I was going to almost take over. But I catch myself. And I realized that as I hit, I almost can't go stop. But I thought, don't, if you don't want to stop, you're going to tip over. So I kept pedaling. I kind of pedaled through the hole. Like the back tire the same hole as the front, first one got out. The back tire sunk into the hole. And the same thing as I kept pedaling. I pedaled out of it. My bike kind of came out of my front and kind of wobbled. And I ended up just kicking over. And when I tipped over, I. You know, we were wrestler and I got my hands up. I remember like thinking in my head, I'm worried about my sunglasses. I hang them up and make a t-shirt. I was worried about um, breaking my sunglasses. And, uh, but I got both hands up and I remember thinking, it's kind of like a somersault. It wasn't like going really fast. There's other like, things. Sometimes people think I had my stroke riding a motorcycle or something, but I didn't. It was just a bicycle and it wasn't going really fast. And, um, I thought I'd just do a somersault on the grass at the very end. So I'm falling down, and it's like, you know, I just rolled across the grass on the top of my head. Breathing really hard. It was just like, it would be like doing a headstand on a hardwood floor. Like, it was a little bit of pressure on my head. It wasn't like I got whacked into the ground or anything. But I think just rolling across the, the grass at that moment, and I think I've always felt like, I had all these messages like, watch your sunglasses, watch your, you know, this, protect this, protect that, watch your, watch your head, and there all these like, firing messages in my brain. And then I rolled over on the top of my head on the grass. And it's like, oh, I'm still. <clears throat> I, um, yeah, I lost everything right away. There was, Paralyzed fruits, like if someone was going to saw you right in half, they're down the middle. Right down the middle of your body. And, uh, my right side worked, my left side was nothing. And I remember lying on the grass, I was embarrassed. Uh, I had no helmet that day. He goes, well, Why didn't you have a helmet on that day? And uh, he had a concussion. Why would you buy the work on a helmet? That's a very annoying story for me. I did have that, and I did a brand new helmet. I bought a brand new helmet in December, and I had it in the backseat of my car for the whole winter. It was still in the box, and um, I think mom and my kids, while I was driving to school, was just playing around with the car, and they just popped up on the chin because there was no part of the basketball in And they took it off, and it wasn't around. So I had a helmet that day. And I remember a lot of it was on the way where I was going bike riding, so I stopped in at the place where I bought my helmet like six months before. And I came back and I said, I bought this helmet. And so I just need this little piece I need for my helmet. How am I going to get home? And they said, You can't get the little piece you have got to hold your helmet. And I got pissed off about it. I said, No, screw this. We had the, um, the the GAs or whatever it was in Calgary at the time. I wanted to ride downtown to see all the protesters. So I remember it was like one time riding my bike without a helmet, I should be okay. That was the biggest mistake in my life. And um, when I hit the ground, I lost everything. I couldn't do anything. I remember my doctor telling me that I had a few bad stroke. And they also told me, if we'd only known me that, uh, they were worried that I was, I had a brain hemorrhage. 
And there's a drug called, I think it's called CBA or something like that. And if they can do this drug and inject it to you quick enough, it'll go right through your whole, all your arteries and everything. It'll block, push out anything. It'll just, it just goes all the way through and clears out all your blockages. But if you've got a hemorrhage, it'll it kill you and make you bleed to death. And it's great. Didn't give me the drug. And I had the stroke. One of them would tell me the next day that I didn't have hemorrhage. And they could have given me the drug, but they had to make a split second decision and they decided not to. Which, you know, when you're lying in your bed and paralyzed, the house, your whole body's paralyzed. I was so mad. I was like, like just the irony of that. And they had the, the medicine that could have saved me, but they didn't give it to me. You know, I had no idea. I remember thinking, when do you, you just you shake it off? When do you, okay, how long does this work last? A couple, six weeks, two months? Or, I don't understand the full. You know, I'd seen older people have strokes, but I really didn't understand it. And um, they were like, and they wouldn't tell you. That was one thing I remember. The doctors came over to me and they stood and said, when do I get better? That's up to God, you know, it's, it's not, uh, we can't tell you, you know, we're just hoping and praying and getting recovery and hoping you get some of this stuff back and I'm really kind of being like, it's not going to be in the They don't understand the answer. And then as you recover, you know, I'm not sure if this is even most of the whole point of the question, but you recover, you don't realize, I didn't realize the, the magnitude of one. So I think like, I just wake up one day and say, come on, it's starting to come back. And then all of a sudden I'm walking around again, my back, right heart's back again, and I'm good. But after about five days, I realized, like, it's, this is going to be really serious. Like, you may never get another premature. So you, um, <clears throat> I know it's probably not even one of your questions at all. It's been useful information for people. But I remember they'd wheel me in a wheelchair and I couldn't move anything. My whole body's dead weight on one side, so you drag it around. I was probably about 230 pounds, so I carried on. A lot of weight on one side of my body, it's all dead weight. And I couldn't. I remember they'd take me and drop my hand on the table and say, turn it over. Just turn your hand, flip it over like this, or that. And you'd sit there for like 30 minutes trying to turn your hand over. <clears throat> it was like, turn your hand over, what's up? Is it trying to turn over a car in the parking lot? Wow. Well, what can you say to that? That was, that was just fascinating, wasn't it? Yeah, as we alluded to before we went into the audio, it was it was intense, it was raw, it was real, it was everything we we said it would be. Um, just just listening to it back, preparing for this episode, brought back some memories of of just what it was. It was an incredible evening getting to to meet firsthand, you know, one one of the most important wrestlers of of my childhood, and. As as we mentioned, with the, the the difference between what he was discussing on that tour and his book, you know, the, get the book. It's one of the best wrestling books mm. ever ever brought out. It's brilliant. But even if you can vividly remember the content of that book, like I can, uh, you'll realise that you, you know he went into much more detail. And and when a man's saying it, rather than putting it into words, as you see, like if you have a conversation with someone over text versus if you talk to them in person. There's so many more dimensions to a real conversation. It was all there. Uh, it was goosebump stuff, and you, you know, n- not many people can imagine going through what Brett's been through in his life. And it's, it, yeah, it's really hard to put into words. But it's, it's worth also mentioning that uh, I'm not sure what the ticket situation is, but a couple of weeks after. Uh, this is this goes live. There, Bret Hart will be back in the UK with Inside the Rope. So yes, if you didn't get, if you didn't get that chance with uh, with Kayfabe, look in look on the Inside the Ropes. We'll see if there's tickets near you still available. Uh, it's highly recommended. Whatever oh, wherever that wherever the, the the setup is, the whatever setup that Kenny and company decide to go for, whatever questions are fired at him. 
what you're going to get out of him is going to be so genuine and you're going to get more than your money's worth. It's yeah, going to be the, fantastic insight. Yeah, the, I mean, you know, just from that answer, you can tell the honesty and the integrity of the guy is, 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 is absolutely second to none. It really is. Well, we will wrap it up there. Thank you ever so much for joining us. And uh, if this is your first Because WCW podcast, then thank you for downloading us. There's another 39 episodes in our back catalogue at this moment in time for you to look through. You can follow us on Twitter at Because WCW uh, or we're on Facebook.com forward slash Because WCW. So we'll be back very shortly reviewing pay-per-views, doing nitro watch-alongs. So in the meantime, this is the Twisted Genius Dinas on behalf of my colleague Liam Hatt saying thank you so much for downloading this episode and I'll see you later.